and summoned Barak, the son of Abinonam, and from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Chris and Joyce, for leading that reading for us. It felt like we were listening to Deborah there, didn't it? Um, the reason I asked uh, Chris and Joyce to do the reading is uh, they are, uh, if you know the Gopperts, they're retired missionaries from Zimbabwe, and they're going to be spending the next six weeks back in their home country, visiting people that they have led to the Lord and, and discipled over the years and getting to minister to them and um, getting to meet with some of the pastors and chaplains that they've served over the years. So we're going to miss Chris and Joyce as they're serving for the next six weeks, but wanted to honor them and, and ask our church to be praying for them while they're gone and uh, get a chance to uh, encourage them as you see them today. All right, well, what was it like for you reading Judges this week? Uh, those of you guys who are maybe visiting this week, just want to let you know, we've been spending this whole year going through the Bible as a whole, and we're in the book of Judges, and asking you guys to read a portion of Scripture each week in advance of the sermon, and over the course of the year, we'll go through the whole Bible together, and this week was the book of Judges, and uh, some people find this book very difficult to get through, uh, not because it's uninteresting, actually quite the opposite. It's almost too interesting in some ways, and it can be kind of emotionally off-putting. There's a lot of violence, a lot of graphic inner imagery, a lot of really disturbing stories. And so for some people who read the book of Judges, they come away with this saying, how on earth am I supposed to find anything spiritually uplifting or encouraging from all this violence and all this pain? This feels more like a book of despair and a failure and moral relativism that leads to cynicism. Like, where is the joy in the book of Judges? And if that's where you were, I, I'm glad that you paid enough attention to Judges to get there, because that's kind of the point of the book of Judges. That it's a tragedy story. Unlike Joshua, which is the week before, we, we talked about Joshua last week, Joshua is the story of when things go right, when Israel is faithful, when they do what God tells them to do. But Judges is sort of the foil of Joshua. It's when everything goes wrong. When rather than listening to and obeying God, over and over, the book of Judges says, each man did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone engaged in the way that they thought they should live. And the result of that is a failure of a state. And over the course of the book of Judges, things start from okay morally to getting worse and getting worse and getting worse and getting worse. So by the time the book of Judges ends, it ends with this graphic and disturbing story that causes you to just throw your hands up and say, Israel is no different than Canaan. And the author of Judges says, exactly, right? When we all do what is right in our own eyes, when we all do what we think is best, when we make ourselves the Lord of our life rather than God, there is no difference from us and the world. That's the warning of the book of Judges. So the theme of Judges is everyone does what is right in their own eyes. 
is challenged occasionally by a few bright spots. And we're going to look at one of them today, the person Deborah. We're going to look at how the cycle of judges as a whole works, and then we're going to look specifically at how Deborah's story points us to uh, the hope that we have in Christ. We'll see how the judge's story really is a, a paradigm for all of our lives, for how all of us live in this cycle on our own and the hopelessness that comes from that until we turn ourselves to Jesus. So the first part of the sermon, we're going to look at how the cycle as a whole worked in Judges. The second part, we'll look at this, this story of Deborah in particular. And the last part, we'll make some connections with the New Testament. So that's where we're going today. Um, let's start in chapter 4, verse 1. <clears throat> Judges chapter 4, verse 1. And in these couple of verses, we'll see how <coughs> the cycle of Judges uh, is about to play out. Judges 4, 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Ehud was the judge before, and it's what no little boy has been named since. <laughs> That's not historically accurate, but it's emotionally accurate. <laughs> Verse 2, And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazar. And the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Haroshesh, Haroshesh Hagoyim. And then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. So here's a cycle that Israel experiences. Israel chooses to disobey God, and they choose to go and worship other gods. Uh, in verse 1, it just describes it as doing evil on the side of the Lord. But if you read Judges as a whole, this doing evil in Judges is repeatedly the, the choice to worship other gods instead of God. And as a result of that choice of idolatry, they experience the natural consequences of that which is oppression under the people that worship those same gods. So what God essentially tells Israel is, if you want to worship the God of the Canaanites, you're going to live under the thumb of the Canaanites. So they, they go from um, idolatry to oppression, and then from oppression, eventually they will cry out to God out of desperation, maybe even more than repentance, just out of pain. God, would you do something? Would you rescue us? And this is, this is the main thing theological thrust of Judges is that God is gracious, and God repeatedly comes back to save his people, even when they don't deserve it. And in this case, he does it by sending a judge, a, a military leader, who will deliver the people from the oppression of the Canaanites, and then they experience a season of rest. And so the cycle, it, it's, it's, it's almost fooling ourselves to think of it as one cycle, as if it operates on the same plane. Because as Judges continues, the cycles go downward, right? They get worse and worse and worse. And the judges become worse people. They become less morally uh, admirable, and they become more difficult to find any redeeming quality in. The rest periods for Israel become shorter, and the cruelty of their oppression becomes worse. Because again, judges is a failure story. It's a downward cycle of despair. And by the end of it, we have this almost uh, impossible hope. God, is there any judge you could raise up who would save us? Is there any hope that there would one day be the sort of leader who would have the sort of personal integrity, moral purity, heart before you who actually wants to lead the people in a way that's not self-serving but serves others and whose heart is fully devoted to you and is able not just to serve them for a time, for a couple years or even 40 years, but someone who can lead forever, who will never be crippled by death but can establish a kingdom that will last for eternity. But that seems almost too good to be true, right? <laughs> until we see Jesus in the New Testament. But we'll get there towards the end. So that's the cycle that Israel experiences. Idolatry, which leads to oppression, 
which leads to crying out to God, which leads to deliverance, which leads to rest. And we see this in uh, Israel repeat over and over in Judges. And the reason it keeps repeating, the book of Judges tells us, is because of this moral relativism, that everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And because everyone does what is right in their own eyes, they try to accommodate or integrate worship of God with worship of other gods. They try to make themselves in control of what's acceptable. And one of the things they do is they fail to drive the Canaanites out from the land. If you were here last week when we talked about Joshua, remember that God told Israel, the Canaanites for 400 years have been a wicked people who have done wicked things, including things like sexual assault, uh, sexual abuse, um, child sacrifice to their gods. You do not want to be their neighbor. You do not want to be influenced by them. You have to drive them out of the land. They destroy the poor. They destroy the immigrant. You, you have to push them out. And Israel in Judges says, well, you know, I know God said that, but we know better, right? We're more enlightened now than God. So we're going to, we know that we can withstand this. And so they, in their own eyes, are wise, and they disregard the commands of God. And the result of that in Judges is this warning that none of us are as strong as we think we are. And certainly none of us are as wise as we think we are. Because even when everyone does what is right in their own eyes, in the end, they all worship something after all. On the surface, everyone does what is right in their own eyes sounds like a libertarian paradise, where everyone's free to make their own choices. They're free to live how they want. They're free to make themselves their own God. And yet, and yet, when they, everyone does what is right in their own eyes, they still all worship something. What could be bad about everyone doing what's right in their own eyes? We are all wired to worship. When, the, according to judges, when we live how we want, we choose to worship something that doesn't deserve our worship. And it results in a vicious oppression. Not an oppression that comes from God, but an oppression that comes from our own sin. When we choose to worship foreign gods, when we choose to worship idols of our own making, when we choose to worship any created thing rather than the creator, we make that thing into something it can never be, which is a God to fulfill all of our needs. We all worship something, both in that day 3,300 years ago and today. We all worship something. Either we'll worship the God who made us and the God who made the universe, or we'll worship ourselves, or we'll worship uh, sources of identity. We'll worship things like our careers, or our beauty, or our intellect, or what people say about us, or the money that we have, or the things we make. We all worship something. And the warning of Judges is, when we worship, whatever we worship will rule us, and idols are cruel rulers. And Israel's freedom to practice idolatry results in oppression. In chapter 5, Deborah will sing a song about what's happened, kind of like Miriam did before her in Exodus 15. And in Deborah's song, she says, When new gods are chosen, then war was in the gates. When new gods were chosen, war was in the gates. Israel chose oppression when they chose their gods. And we have a choice, too, about which gods we will serve and what oppression or freedom will come with that. This was the warning Joshua gave Israel at the end of his life. He says, Choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. When Jesus was on earth, he told people uh, that his yoke was easy and his burden was light. Because when we worship him, we serve him, when we live his way of life, we walk in the way he's made us to live. But if we try to live for beauty, it will fade. If we try to live for other people's opinions, they will be cruel masters of our lives. If we try to live for achievement, we will never achieve enough. If we try to live for greed, we will never have enough. 
idolatry is always a, a leaky bucket that can never be filled. And it's one that always will end up heavy on our head. Jesus offers us a yoke that is easy and a burden that is light. And Israel experiences their failure to do that with a heavy yoke of oppression. As it says in verse 3, um, Sisera and the king Jabin cruelly oppressed Israel for 20 years. And when all else failed, Israel turns back to God. Not necessarily out of repentance, but just out of desperation. And they cry out to God. And a lot of us, if we were God, would say, see, you're getting what's coming to you. Right? Especially after it's the fourth time, and the fifth time, and the sixth time, and the seventh time. But God is gracious far beyond what we are. And God hears them and sends a deliverer. The desperation of Israel in this case reminds me of a husband who's repeatedly betrayed his wife and from jail has only one phone call and his only hope is to call her. And yet God is gracious when all else fails. And he sends these judges, these, don't think of, um, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg or Anna Scalia or someone like that. Think of uh, more of a military leader that were sent to rescue Israel from the oppression of the Canaanites. And here, this is, I, I think this is really going to help you when you read the book of Judges. The judges are not moral models for you. Don't see them as people that you should emulate. The judges are meant to show us God's hand. They're not meant to show us models of how we should live. You know, in the early part of the book, when the judges are sort of better people, you can say like, oh, Deborah, like I kind of want to be like Deborah. But as the stories go on, you're like, Gideon, I don't know. And then you get to like Abimelech and Jephthah and Samson, and you're like, I don't know what moral model I'm supposed to take out of these people's lives. But, but that's sort of the point, right? That the hero is not the judges, the hero is God. That they get, as they get worse and worse over the course of the book, God's grace is shown more and more clearly. There's a theological point to this. By the end of the cycle, even the best that Israel can muster is no different than the Canaanites around them. The, the best that Israel can offer on their own is no different than the world. Right? Because all people, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But we're gonna, I'm going to punt and choose an easy one. I chose one from the early part of the book when the judges seemed better because I'm a wuss, I guess. And uh, we're going to talk about Deborah. And so what I want to do over the next couple of minutes, what I want to do over the next couple of minutes is tell you Deborah's story as a whole in case you didn't get a chance to read it or maybe it didn't make a lot of sense to you. Um, so I'm going to describe what happens in chapter 4 and then we'll come back and talk about some of the details in a second. So in Deborah, in in Judges 4.4, 4, it describes Deborah as a prophetess of God who is judging Israel at the time. Now, that, that's two jobs in one, right? So Deborah is already incredibly committed and incredibly full on her plate of what she's doing for God. She's a prophetess, which means she's speaking on behalf of God's words, and she's also judging Israel, meaning she's the leader, uh, the moral and political and judicial leader of Israel at the time. She's, she's doing both jobs at once. There's a very short list of people who do that at both do both those jobs at once in Israel. Uh, it's Moses and Samuel and Deborah. Those are the three. And so Deborah's got a lot on her plate. And so she speaks on behalf of God. And one of the things she says is to Barak. And she forms it in the form of a question. But when you're the prophet, there aren't really questions. There's just statements that have a question mark at the end. Uh, and this is what it says in verse 6. She sent and summoned uh, Barak. I should say Barak. Um, Barak would have a C in there, so Barak. The son of Abinoam from Kedesh Deftali and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabed's army, 
to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. So on, on the surface, this sounds like a, a pretty direct military description of what to do, but let me just fill in some of the gaps that maybe we miss because we're, um, we're not as acquainted with 13th century BC warfare. Um, 20 years of oppression under Canaanite rule had left the Israelites' army as non-existent. In fact, in chapter 5, Deborah describes them as having neither sword nor shield in all of Israel. And while that may be hyperbole, they're certainly at a huge military disadvantage. They've spent the last 20 years with no hope of pushing off the Canaanites. And Deborah says, well, why don't you just get a bunch of men together and just push them out? Which is kind of the equivalent of saying, like, well, why don't you just jump higher in order to dunk the basketball? Like, I would if I could. Um, and you kind of get Barak's idea in response that, while this seems like a good idea, Deborah, there's no chance of this succeeding. 10,000 men without weapons is just an impossible army to feed. It's not really a military strategy. And the Canaanites not only had weapons, they had iron chariots, which were kind of like tanks. They were impossible to defeat from infantry, and that's the reason the Canaanites have been so successful for all those decades over the Israelites. There's no human reason this was going to be successful. And Barak's uh, hesitancy comes to the surface very quickly. In verse 8, he responds with this half-hearted confession of faith. If you go with me, I'll go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Now, what do we make of that, right? Barak is uncertain of whether he wants to do this. He's uncertain of whether this is God, maybe. He's uncertain of whether this is going to be successful, and he's hesitant. But of course, before we mock him for his half-faith, which all, so many of us would be in the same boat, um, let's look at the glass half-full on this. He's being asked to essentially take on a suicide mission, not just with himself, but with all of his tribe. He's asked, Deborah is asking him, God is asking him, to do something that seems humanly impossible. And he says, maybe because he's calling Deborah's bluff, you know this is a suicide mission. Unless you're going to jump in the sinking boat with me, I'm not doing this. But Deborah is willing to, because she is a woman full of faith and courage. And she says, I'll surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Gender is so at the forefront of this story, isn't it? We see Deborah, the female prophet, and Sisera, um, the male oppressor, and Deborah is going to be the one who, or Deborah says there's going to be a woman who is going to destroy this great ruler. Now, it makes it seem like it's going to be her, but we meet a new character in verse 11, this woman, Jael. And at first, your eye probably glosses over the verse because it's a bunch of names and places that don't mean much. And, you know, this random person I've never heard of from this random group I've never heard of moves to this place I've never heard of. Great, I could read that on Zillow. Why, why do I need this? Um, but we'll learn more about jail as the story goes on because God is doing something that no one else is expecting. Now, Barak takes the 10,000 men from his tribe and the neighboring tribe next to him and goes on a hiking trip up Mount Tabor. But Sisera, because he is a cruel uh, oppressor, hears about this and immediately takes all of his men, according to verse 12, and all of his chariots and assembles at the river Kishon, right where Deborah said he would show up. Now, the Kishon River is a nice place to set up an army because there's water there. It's a small creek. It's easy to walk across, at least when it's not flowing. And it's not the vast majority of time. Uh, but it's also what's called a vadi, which means like a, a flash flood area. And so... Deborah tells uh, Barak one day when his men are up on the mountain, today's the day to go down the hill. Today's the day to go fight them. 
And I would say if I'm Barack, there is never a good day to attack iron chariots, right? This is not a good day. But Barak, to his credit, is full of faith and goes down the hill. And as he's going down, a rainstorm seems to come. Barak's name, which means lightning, is met with God's actions of sending a flood through this wadi. And all of a sudden, these iron chariots that they had feared so much become useless, and they can't move because they're stuck in the mud. And the 900 chariots become sitting ducks for his army of 10,000 men, and he routs them and sends them fleeing. And in verse uh, 15, it says, The Lord routed Sisera, just to be clear of whose battle this is, and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. This oppressor of Israel that they had feared so much now is hopeless on his own. It's God who has conquered him, who has driven him away, and it's God ultimately who will send him into the hands of the least likely person for him to fear. This woman, Jael. It's the last character that we meet in the story, and it's the person that in verse 11 we had heard had moved, her family had moved for no apparent reason and just happened by coincidence to be right in the path of where Sisera would run to. Not by their wisdom or cunning, but by God's providential hand. And so he runs into the camp where she is, and she says, no, come in my tent, you're safe here, you can hide. Um, and she gives him something to drink, and he falls asleep, and pardon the graphic imagery, but he ki- she kills him, driving a tent peg through his temple. And when Barak shows up in the camp to try to find him, uh, Jael says, this is the one you're looking for, and he's dead. Yeah, right? <laughs> As a result of Jael's courage and her actions, Israel's able to push back against their oppressors and under Deborah's leadership, experience 40 years of peace. Okay, so that's the story. What on earth does this mean for your life and my life? Well, we're gonna talk about each of these three main characters here, Deborah, Barak, and Jael. And in each of their lives, we see an important lesson taught. It's that God rescues Israel through unlikely people who are willing to serve him. That when God delivers the people of Israel, he does it through people who are willing to serve him. The message of Deborah in Judges 4 and 5 is that the issue is not whether God is strong or God is faithful, but whether God's people are willing to trust him and to serve him. And that lesson's the same one for us today. Deborah is an unlikely judge, and she's an unlikely leader in a lot of ways, except that she's willing to do it. She's unlikely primarily because of her gender. She's the only female judge that we see in the book of Judges, and she's only one of five female prophets we see in the Old Testament. And probably because of her gender, it's unlikely that she would be the military leader of Israel herself, except for one thing, which is that she's willing. When Barak is faithless, she is faithful, and she's willing to go down herself. Now, quick aside here. Sometimes people wonder, how much do we make of this example of Deborah as a female leader? And there's sort of two, two extremes that people take it to. On one extreme, some people say, this is a huge deal. This is proof that women and men are the same and that women and men should be treated the same in every aspect of life at all times and all places. So that's kind of one side. The other side would say, no, Deborah's story is a warning that when male passivity undercuts the mission of God, that God will use women leaders, but that the, the right version of the story was that Barak is faithful from the beginning and that he leads and that Deborah is not thrust into the battle herself. Those are kind of the two interpretations, two arguments. Uh, which one's right? Oh, I don't know. Uh, can we talk about something else? No, um, <laughs> no I, I'm, I'm hesitant to make too much of either point because, look, Deborah was already a prophet. She was already a judge before Barak is faithless, right? She doesn't become in those roles as a result of Barak's faithful, faithlessness. 
She comes into those roles at the beginning of the story. She already carries those labels and those identities. So I think uh, saying that she's only a leader because the man is passive is not doing service to what the Bible teaches. On the other hand, treating every leadership role as if it's the same, as if judge, prophet, elder, king, pastor, if they're all the same category and that anytime we see one, we see the same, all the rest, I, I don't think that does, uh, does respect for the nuance of the New Testament as well. So that's, that's all I want to say about that. Let's talk about anything else. All right. So what I really want you to notice from Deborah's story, though, is her willingness to participate, right? That even though she's fully engaged already, she takes on more because she wants to see the people delivered and God's name honored. And willingness really is the primary problem with a lot of our participation in the mission of God. You know, we heard about the story of St. Patrick earlier and how after losing his youth to slavery in Ireland, if anyone deserved not to have to go be a missionary to Ireland, it was Patrick. And yet he was willing to continue to serve the Irish people, the same people who had enslaved him, and bring the gospel to them. Uh, the middle schoolers that we heard about earlier in the service that uh, raised so much money to, to bring a Bible translation to a people group in South America, you know, there's a lot of excuses that we'll give to students and youth in our culture of why they shouldn't have to do anything mission-oriented, but they were willing to participate in the mission of God. And as a result of that, they got to see God do great things through them. Same questions for us. Like, how willing are we to do what God calls us to do? Barak is unlikely as well, but for kind of the opposite reason. He has every social reason to be a leader except his lack of willingness. He's hesitant. And his hesitancy is kind of the flaw of Israel as a whole. That's the problem that leads judges to where it is, this problem that they were unwilling to do what God had told them to do. And Barak was unwilling to do what God had told him to do. And before we kick him too much, often we're unwilling, or at least we're hesitant to do what God calls us to do. As C.S. Lewis said, we're often half-hearted creatures. Right? And I see this in so many different ways in my life, ways that I'm half-hearted or hesitant to evangelize or to serve or to be generous with other people. And I imagine for you guys as well that you see a lot of yourself in Barak too. You know, there's some stories where the villain is clear, and we say, we don't want to be like that. But then there's stories like Barak. We say, well, I mean, he did eventually go, right? He eventually did the right thing. He eventually got to participate in what God called him to do. And Deborah blesses him in chapter 5. She sings about him and says, my heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Jesus tells a parable kind of like this in the New Testament. When he talks about two sons, one who was uh, told his father he was unwilling to do what he said, and yet after time went out and did what he was called to do. And then the other son who said he was willing and yet never went. And said, Jesus asked rhetorically, like, who's the better son? Right? Who's the one who truly the father delights in? Same question's there for us, right? It's better to be like Barak and be hesitant but willing than never to follow through on what God calls us to do. On the other hand, we meet Jael, who, like Deborah, had every reason socially not to be expected to be a military leader. Not only was she a woman, but she was a Kenite, which meant she wasn't part of the people of Israel. She was related through Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. It wasn't her fight. She wasn't a soldier. She wasn't an Israelite. She wasn't a man. There was no reason this was her battle to wage. And yet she lands literally the death blow against Sisera, because even though there was no reason she had to, she was willing to. And God had put her in that place by providence. 
for such a time as this, right, she had been the one who had been faithful. And Deborah, whose name means bee, and Jael, whose name means mountain goat, were the two people that defend the land flowing with milk and honey. A bee and a goat. I just think, I think that's cool. I don't know. I don't, all right, fine. So cool. All right, let's deal with the objection here that comes here, though. Like, yeah, yeah, Bob, that's all good, but she, like, killed a man, right? Like, she drove a peg through his head. This is a story about a war. Like, how is there joy in this? Like, I get that willingness is a good thing and that uh, being willing even after you've been hesitant is a good thing, but, like, is it a good thing if that willingness leads to such violence? Like, isn't the whole book of Judges, like, hopelessly corrupted by violence? Is there any joy that we can find in a book that so glamorizes hurting someone else? Well, I think that's a, that's a totally fair question. And I guess I'd, I'd have a couple of responses. Uh, one, that's kind of the point of Judges, right? That when we all do what is right in our own eyes, we end up hopelessly wicked against one another. Even the people that are supposed to be the people of God, when we refuse to obey God, become hopelessly wicked against one another. So I guess your objection about Judges is a, is a good founded one. Uh, second one, I would say, um, don't cry too much for Sisera, right? Sisera had oppressed the people for 20 years. There was no policeman that jail could call. There was no army that she could wage. He was a warrior who had, as his intent, wiping out the people of Israel. I, don't shed too many tears for Sisera. And the third thing I would say is, when sin reigns, wicked, uh, impossible ethical situations present themselves. When we try to figure out what's the right thing for her to have done here, um, it'd be a pretty, pretty privileged and modern solution to say, well, she should have called the police. Right? There was no police. Cicero was the police, right? Um, and so I, I have some sympathy for her in that. But I don't, I don't feel the need to morally explain all the decisions of the judges because they're not meant to be moral exemplars. They're meant to point us to the fact that in our moral relativism, we create wicked situations and that we need a judge who's not ruled by this moral relativism, but a judge who points us to the goodness of God. And so let's talk about that. In our, oh my gosh, the time is over. Let's talk about, in the, our last couple minutes, what the judges do in terms of pointing us to the New Testament, pointing us to Jesus. You know, the warning of judges is that partial lordship isn't lordship at all. The warning of judges is by the Israelites' failure to drive out the Canaanites, to do what's right in their own eyes, to attempt to accommodate other gods with God, they become a hopelessly wicked people. And the warning of judges is there for us as well. If we try to make ourselves the Lord of our life, if we try to do what is right in our own eyes rather than God's eyes, we will slide down the same path as the judges before us. And the moral lessons of the judges are that the hero of the story is always going to be God. That decline and renewal are possible, but they're only possible in a limited way if we try to do it without God. That we need a judge who the, even the best judges of the Old Testament can only fade only faintly point to. You know, Deborah, uh, in her greatest moments, is someone who went with the weak-minded and the weak-faithed in order to save Israel. But Jesus is the better Deborah, the one who walks with us in the midst of our doubts and saves us. Barak leads his men into battle against the Canaanites, and there's something admirable about that. But Jesus is the better Barak because he chooses not to lead his people disciples into warfare, but rather lays down his own life for the very enemies who've come to arrest him. Jael is admirable in a sense because she uses tent pegs and nails to free Israel. 
But Jesus is the better jail because rather than driving them into someone else's body, he accepts the nails into his own body. The judges are helpful because they have authority, but it always ends with their death. It only lasts for 20 years or 40 years. But Jesus' authority not only extends forever, but it expands after his death. He is brought to the right hand of the Father, and he leads a kingdom that will never end. The book of Judges has this warning statement. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And we might say, in our day, we have a king, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and we do what is right in his eyes. The right king can fix this. The right king can lead us to a place of peace, not at the expense of our neighbor, but by giving us love for our neighbor. A couple questions for you to think about, reflect about this week. As you think about these judges, you think about Deborah, Barak, Jail. You know, they had faults, but they also had virtues. Which of them do you identify most with? How could you grow uh, in light of what you see in their lives? Secondly, when have you used some of the excuses? Just thinking about Barak in particular. When have you been hesitant? When have you used excuses to stay on the sidelines of God's mission? And how might he be challenging you to, to a different place today? And then lastly, how do you see Jesus as the delivering judge? The one who brings about his kingdom. Maybe even think about that line from the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How does thinking of Jesus as the delivering judge frame the way you pray that this week? Let's close our time together in prayer. God, we're grateful for the story of Deborah, not because just of who she is, but much more importantly of who you are. God, I look at my life and I look at the way that I've continued half-heartedly to follow you at times, to stand on the sidelines and be hesitant when I shouldn't be, who've done what, when I've done what is right in my own eyes versus your own eyes. And God, I, I humbly repent of those things and we humbly repent of those things. God, we ask that you would deliver us, not just from um, the Canaanites like Israel did, but deliver us from sin and death. God, may we get out of this cycle of the judges and live forever with you. God, we are grateful for the example of Deborah. We're grateful for the example of Barak and the example of Jael, but much more we're grateful for who they point to. God, we want to live under your gracious and kind leadership, not the heavy yoke of sin. And so in your name we pray. Amen. Well, as we close with this final song this morning, I invite you to sing with us and to ponder this last bit of this